Welcome to Careers Unwrapped, where we delve into real-life career stories from successful people who've been through it all, the ups and the downs. We'll get their raw, honest, actionable advice and be the careers talk they wish they'd had when they started out. As someone who has had a varied career, from soldier to salesman, expedition leader to entrepreneur, he knows firsthand that your career doesn't always lead you where you expect it to. Here's your host, Mark Fawcett. Hello and welcome to Careers Unwrapped. I'm your host, Mark Fawcett, and with me today is Topa Chidozi. Topa is a training facilitator. He's also an ex-rapper. He's also the founder and host of The Sit Down. There's a lot going on here. So we're going to be discussing his career highs and lows, his views on how to engage with young people, his thoughts and inspiration for those of you who are just figuring out your own careers. So Topa, welcome to Careers Unwrapped. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Let's just start to give people, all of us, a bit of a view of what your work mix is these days. Yeah. Let's say for the past 10 years, I've been doing workshop facilitation. And that has been for a charity organization called MyBank. And their main thing was to provide financial education to young people, 16 to 25 years. So I was doing workshops in prisons, in community hubs secondary schools, primary schools. I went all the way to Eton to do a workshop, Cambridge. And so it enabled me to experience different audiences and presenting information to a range of different audiences, but more importantly, trying to make finance sexy. Like, it's boring, but we all need that information. We were taught maths in school, but nobody taught us finance. So for the past 10 years, that's what I've been doing because it's been something that's passionate to me. But I left in June after 10 years, and alongside it, I've always been working on something called the sit-down. The sit-down is my baby, it's my heart, it's something I'm so passionate about, and it's all it is is a live Q&A platform. I get guests on a range of different industries. We unpack the truth of their journey, their career, the highs, the lows, everything in between, similar to what you do, but then we give the audience an allotted space of time to ask their own questions, because... We all have questions, and sometimes those are only relegated to the comment sections on YouTube or DMs that never get answered. So we give people the opportunity to ask the questions most pertinent to them. So I've been doing that, doing the sit-down, and being a husband and a father. All of these are big hats to wear. Busy, mixed life and career then at the moment. So we'll, we'll unwrap this as we go along and see what we can learn out of it. But you mentioned there about questions from audiences so i'll actually straight away come up with a question from one of our career starters they wanted to put across to you which was your facilitation of workshops as you just described from eton to prisons to schools all over the country have obviously had you engaging with a huge variety of different people from different life situations and backgrounds so what do you think are the skills that enables you to resonate and connect with such a variety of different people yeah that's a good question one of them i definitely say is you have to be able to read the room very quickly whatever room you enter you're about to deliver a workshop as about to present to an audience you've got a maximum of 15 to 20 seconds to survey the land who are the people that i'm about to present to even though they've given me a topic and i've rehearsed it and i've practiced it what does the room require right now? And a good example of this is I went to a school and we were to deliver a financial workshop. And the school was quite rowdy. 
the kids were like bouncing off the walls. It was Monday morning and we had to entice them to come to our workshops for the rest of the day. Now, nobody wants to say, hey, come to a financial workshop. And so we were all standing at the front of the assembly. We were about to present who we are. And my colleague who was about to just say, hey, guys, here we are. We're my back. Come to our course. And I read the room and thought, that's not going to go down well. They're going to they're going to think, no, they don't want to come to this. So I tapped him and said, and then I just started to rap. I have a rap that I made around money and I just started to rap. And it enabled the whole of the room to just be focused on what I was doing at that time. At the end of it, they were shouting and screaming and applauding. And then I was able to deliver the information. So it was a lesson there that you've got to be able to read the room and then pivot and adapt quickly. What you planned in your notes may not necessarily be what you end up actually doing. I completely agree with that. And I just wonder from your perspective, your ability to read the room, how much of that do you think is something that is natural to you? And how much of it is something that you have developed as a skill and got better at? How good were you at reading a room when you started? I love you said that. Like, well, for me, I've got this scar on my head. And this is a scar that I got from in childhood. So when I was born, I was five months premature. And so as soon as I was born, I was placed into an incubator. I had tubes, everything in me. And I had to have two operations, one on my stomach, one on my head. And this left a scar. And so it meant that as I grew older, obviously my head gets bigger, the scar gets bigger with it. So it meant that as I was growing up, I was very much aware of my surroundings because I always felt like I was the odd one out. I was aware of people looking at me. Did that person just look at me? Are they staring at me? Oh, I can see them staring at me from the corner of my eye. So I've been in that realm of being able to observe a room very quickly and understand, you know, what is going on. And I think that has fed into workshops facilitation where naturally I'm able to do it, but now it's heightened because I know that all these different audiences are going to require a different version of me. So I'd say it's definitely a skill to definitely develop, but I've had it naturally. And if you gave the example then of wrapping in the assembly as a time that it worked what about a time when reading the room really didn't work what happened and what did you learn from that you go into a situation where it's young people especially with young people you assume the way to approach it is to come on their level maybe you're using particular words particular slang maybe you might play particular music and set the mood and i remember there was one session i did i think it was in East London. And I took that mentality that, yeah, these are urban kids who, you know, that kind of hit. And they were just looking at me like, what are you doing? They wanted to just learn the information. They didn't want no gimmick. They didn't want no free actress. They just actually wanted to learn about financial education. And I remember going through, it was only halfway through the workshop that I kind of realized that and I had to adapt. And I actually had to apologize to them. I said, I know. I know you guys just want the information, so let's go for it. And we went through the numbers, and they took in the information. And it just showed me you have to be able to, it's all about adapting and pivoting. Read in the room, look at the facial expression. You know, walking into a school, what is happening in reception in the morning? What's happening in the corridors? You walk into the classroom. Who are on the front row? Who is at the back row? Are there windows? Are there no windows? Do the windows look out into the corridor? Because all these things feed into success of your workshop and you have to adapt and pivot 
that so strikes a chord, particularly about the receptions of schools. And I, like you, visited hundreds of schools, or you've been to more all around the UK and overseas. That first glimpse you get of when you come in the gates and you see how young people are behaving, you see the attitude of receptions, you're starting to pick it up. But I found that interesting as well, what you're saying about reading the room and getting it wrong sometimes, because you can make a judgment right at the beginning, but then you are impacting the room that you're reading as well. So you think, oh, this is what they want, but your attitude, your behavior is changing the way that they're reacting to you. So you've learned a lot of skills then as a facilitator, as a trainer. Were you involved with that experience in helping the newer junior facilitators and trainers develop? Did you train the trainers? Train the trainer, that was our program. That's exactly what it was called. And so I would help, we would co-deliver, either we would co-deliver or we do lunch and learn. So people have a lunch and we'll go through, hey, when you go into a room, these are the things to kind of monitor, be aware of, and things like your body language, your tone, things like the way you present in terms of making sure it's not too PowerPoint heavy, but being able to pull apart the information and make it relatable to the audience. So yeah, I was very much heavily involved in that. And a lot of that also was looking at the content that we're actually providing and being able to evaluate it, test it, evaluate it, test it, update it. So sometimes it's not just about how you present it, but what is it that you're actually presenting? What is the nature of that content? And is it even relevant to where you're at? You mentioned earlier that in the introduction that you used to be a rapper for a number of years, toured around. We'd like to hear a little bit more about that. But as a connection as an intro to that did the creative process in both writing and also in actually performing cross over to your training facilitation work did it help it really did because you are kind of faced with the same scenarios new audiences audiences who don't know who you are they don't care who you are you know when you go to a school and you're seen as a substitute teacher you take on that same profile as if you go to a new city and you're a town and you're this rapper who's come to perform with you. Nobody knows you. Nobody cares. So your job is to make them care. And so you've got to take on the same type of performance techniques, whether it's how you first come on to a stage. And you know, typically there's situations where I've been to a club or been to an event and somebody's going to perform and they say these words that will kill every single time. They say, um, you know, this is my first time here I'm a bit nervous, so be easy with me. <laughs> like, that is the buzzkill of a That's like throwing some food to the lions, basically, in a secondary school. They're just going to eat you alive at that point. So a lot of it did cross over, and I would just take it. You know, on stage, you've got to move up and down the stage to ensure you're engaging the left, the middle, and the right side of the crowd. I would do the same in the classroom. I wouldn't just stand still. I'd maybe walk to the back and maybe walk to the sides. So yeah, there was definitely, you know, a lot of crossover that I tried to take. And moving over to the rapping side, there are many young people who obviously are just bursting to be a musician in some form. They're practicing on their own with a mate. How did you make the move? What were the steps that took you from someone who just wanted to do music into somebody who actually now was a musician and being paid for i would say the steps i took were going from creating in my bedroom making the music in my bedroom going to the studio creating a product 
and it had to the transition stage was moving it from this is a hobby to a product and with a product you need brand you need marketing you need a way to package yourself and sell it to you know an audience after i made the music i would then make sure i had an instagram handle i'd get my website i'd buy a website domain www.icmusic.com doesn't exist anymore but i would start to commercialize and market the music like i said domain instagram handle i'd have to get press pictures i'd have to craft my story what is my story why should somebody listen to me what is my music trying to stand for and so one thing i practically did was i interviewed myself many times i interview myself i look at interviews that people would do with music artists and i'd ask myself those questions and think what's my answer to that so when they said you know why do you make music what is my answer and once i had those kind of crafted okay if i was asked to do an interview we'll be able to ace that we'll be able to definitely show up there and then i would just move to my local area and thinking about right where can i perform who do i know that has a show and sometimes it would be open mic i'll just turn up to an open mic and I'd have my lyrics ready. Once it was my time, the aim was to kill it. Just kill it because you do not know who's in the audience. Anybody, and that's one thing I learned, anybody who can take you to the next level of your music career could be in the audience. But put yourself out. The more you do, the more you create an opportunity to go to the next level. So yeah, I would say those steps were the ones that I took. Create a product, commercialize that product, prep for that product and then get yourself out of the biblical and where's the balance of priority in all of that because you've got the quality of the product you've got the music itself you've got then the performance ability the ability to be able to project that to an audience you've then got as you've just run through the marketing and the branding where does the balance come in what matters most at those first stages i don't mean global superstar but at those first stages of moving from the hobby musician to the professional? I would say the priority is has to be found in identity. What is it that you are trying to do personally? Because as you go, you know, as you progress, everybody's going to want to shift and change that. Oh, why are you making this type of music? You should make this type of music. Why do you dress like this? You should dress like this. And so the foundation has to be what is it that you came in and decided to do and why? Have your why, secure that why, and then you take away it and you go. So when somebody wants to change that, you'd be like, you, know, but we don't do that. you can find that over there, but not over here. And that's what allows people to be unique. And that's what allows people to stand out because they know their why, they stick with it, and then the people who connect with that why follow them wherever they go. So you do a show in... Birmingham, they follow you there. You do a show in London, they follow you there. You do a show in Liverpool, they you there. So understand your why, lock that in, and take that with you wherever you go. And how far did you take the career? How far did you progress as a musician? I got to a point of, you know, me and my brother, we did a song called Up To You. And Up To You was used as Trident, uh, Operation Trident at the time. We're doing a night crime campaign and we collaborated with them. They took the song and they used it in their promotional campaign about putting down the night was able to we did shows all across the uk and then i started to do my solo work i did solo music on myself and released my album my album it was called moment of clarity that was in 2018 december 2018 my best 
music ever. So if you want to go check it out, go to Spotify, I-C-I-E. And it's Moment of Clarity. I love that project. And so I got to release my album. And that for me was a hype for me. And again, this is why people need to understand there, what is success for you? Now, I'm not known across the world. I'm not doing sold out tours like Beyonce. But releasing that album was the equivalent of winning a Grammy for me. It was me being able to pour all of who I am, my music, my messages, into one cohesive album and successfully put it out there. I did a show in Camden. Lots of people came down. And so I loved it. That was my height. In the sense of where I took it to. And then I had my daughter. That's when I stopped. Is that the reason you stopped? I assumed that when I had her, all this music, all this new music flowing out. Oh my gosh, I've got so much to write about. It didn't happen. The opposite happened. All the creative energy I had seemed to pour into the shit down. And so it was almost like this a creative force within me. And it just got applied to a different area. I'm always open to it. But it's just that all of that ball of energy, creatively music, got misdirected, also directed into a new place. So that's where it is at the moment. And were you ever out and about and you came across people who were listening to your music without knowing who you were? No, I didn't have that. I was in a barbershop one time and somebody, randomly, he said, he goes, oh, you're icy, right? I heard, yeah. He goes, you know what? I still play your first mixtape. I was like, Really? Because, yeah, love it. That keep on. So I have these touch points where people have connected with my music, but I've never met them. And so when I meet them, they use that opportunity to tell me. And it's just a reminder that you just don't know how far your music can go. You don't know what your music does for people. And that's why you've got to know your why. Stick to that why. Because if you didn't, if you changed that why, you've changed an ability to connect with someone. I love that description of the highs in the stages you had through your musical career before your daughter was born. We also hear a lot about the dark side of the music industry and the not-so-pleasant parts. To what level did you experience the not-so-good? Frankly, I didn't have like the horror stories that people have had, but I do have the independent artist heels and values, and some of the values are trying to be heard trying to be seen oh my god like do you know how many people want to rap how many people want to sing and you want to kind of rise above that it is difficult also that the money aspect like oh my gosh i came from a time when shooting a video may have cost 300 pounds now you're looking at one five two thousand at least and what's happening is you're recording that video and you're putting it on youtube where's the return so the ROI on music is so low that it can then also affect your mental state and your financial state. Photo shoots cost money. Studio costs money. To master my album, it cost about it was two thousand five hundred. To record it cost about another three thousand pounds. This is before the art cover is even done. I had to do a lot of it myself. I had to design my own cover, and then you've got to promote it. So you might need a plugger. That can be that four hundred pounds. Then you need to get it all across the media site. Just to upload it can cost another 400 The money racks up. And so if you're not seeing a return on that, how are you living? Thankfully, I had a main job and I was using some of the money to fund it. So I didn't see the horrors, but I understood the values, the financial values, the mental health values, thinking, are you good enough? 
Maybe you need to do what everybody else is doing. Maybe you need to rap about what everybody else is rapping about. And so these are the things that independent artists, you know, deal with and struggle with. So you had a day job that paid the essential bills, helped you fund the capital outlay, the cash you needed to get the music going. Did you actually make a return? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no way. All I put in through my whole career, I think I put in, let me give you a round figure. I'd say about 30 or 40,000 pounds, but I didn't earn that. I didn't see any of it back. And this is the interesting part. You've got to come to that crossroad. Well, a lot of people come to that crossroad and they have to make a decision. Is this making sense? Or is it time to look towards something else? Is this making sense? Because sometimes we can dream, dream, dream until our heart's content. But the practicality of it is this is not working. And I think when my daughter came, that was frustrated that felt I came to because I had to buy nappies, I had to buy a pram, I had to buy a car seat. And when it comes to, you know, we're going to fund this video or we're going to get the pram, I couldn't say, I couldn't only pay for the video, knowing I still had to buy a pram, knowing I still had to buy pampers, etc etc and so I had to make that decision where it was like even though creatively I dried up but also my new responsibility is I had to make different decisions so you had at that time you made that big decision to give up a passion of yours you had both practical considerations about money you had future considerations about how successful am I going to be when might that come and you had emotional considerations with the arrival of your daughter, all mixing up to make a big decision. And you've just recently made another big decision because you've left your facilitation and training role about financial education, which you've been doing for about 10 years. You've left that. You're going to focus a lot more on the sit-down. So I think we should probably dive into the sit-down a bit and go, okay, what is this? And why is it now so big and so important to you that you've made this huge decision? Yeah, so like I said, I've been with my band for 10 years and I felt it was, I think it was time because sometimes you can be so comfortable in a situation that it will imprison you. It will actually put you in prison. And I was so comfortable going to the workshop, doing the workshops. There was flexibility, a lot of flexibility. When lockdown happened, thankfully we were able to migrate easily online workshops. So nothing was changed there. So since my daughter's been born till now, I've woken up to her and I put her to bed empty every day due to the flexibility of my job. So the thought of leaving that was like, oh, no, let me stay. But then also the subject matter, I loved the subject matter. You know, it's something I messed up on in my university days, spending student money, not being smart with it. So I've seen the repercussions of that and I've always wanted to give the information to help young people. However, there comes a time when the prison is too tight and I've started to realize that I'm not growing as much as I want to and what else is out there, that question of what else is out there. And so since leaving in June, I've just found a whole spectrum of opportunities here. You know, I'm doing workshops with organizations that are doing great work, helping people do public speaking, helping people do workshops. I've been doing that. I've teamed up with a few brands I'm going to be doing workshops with at the end of August. And so it's showing me that, oh, wow, there are other opportunities out there. And it gives me more time to also work on the sit-down. And the sit-down for me is at a stage where we've been running for six years. We've interviewed the likes of Mary Gilligan, Shola Amar, Bracelet Doja, K. 
Kalechi Okofa, lots of great people, and it needs time and attention. And so I need work that enables me to earn money and feed my family, but flexibility to be able to pour my energy into making it as successful as I possibly believe. And you said at the beginning when you were talking about getting the music going, how important it was to have the why and the who really, really clear. How would you describe what that is for the sit-down? The, the why for the sit-down is the importance of connection. I believe that we as human beings are connected to the power of us. Oh my gosh, we're connected to the power of our stories because we all go through this human experience and there are ways in which we connect to each other. You might have lost someone. I've lost someone. You might have got fired. I've got fired. But when we don't tell these stories, we lose those connections. We don't even know if they're connected. And this is especially true of people who we look up to, who are in the public eye. It seems life is just rosy for them. And so when I get them on this platform and they unpack that story, we all say that, oh my gosh, you've gone through some of the same things that I've experienced. You go through some of the trials and tribulations I have experienced. And that connection, it just builds a better, better bridge. And so my why is to get people to be able to connect with these people's stories so that we all understand we go through the same thing. It started off from that. I spoke to a friend who is quite public in there and people know him. And he just began to tell me all the things he was going through behind the scenes. He does music. So he began to tell me about all the things that were going on. And I was like, but your Instagram page looks amazing. Like, things look like it's going so well. He said, but yeah, but that's just Instagram. And I came away from the conversation thinking, maybe there could be a place that he could come and speak about those things because people need to hear it. People need to hear the reality of the situation and the honesty of your story so that we can all connect. So we all go through stuff. And so I started off with my friend, the first person who was a star. His name's A-Star, he's a music artist, and he was dealing with sickle cell. And I got him to come on. And he was very forthcoming, very open, very vulnerable about his struggles with sickle cell. He was about to get married as well. And then, you know, the ramifications and all that. That gave us the blueprint to say, right, if we can create an intimate space that people can tell their stories, then we're creating somewhere where people can come in. So that's my why. I just want people to connect humanly with our with people's stories. So yeah, that's all I'm doing. Six years down. And where does it go now? Now we are just trying to one establish it as something that is a go-to. So Harry and Meghan, they knew they wanted to say something amazing and something important. They said Oprah, and so we want to become that go-to. If you want to reveal the inner core of who you are, especially with your fans, your supporters, uh, your employers, if you see what I'm saying, come and use the shit that as that place to do that. So we're trying to remain consistent. We are trying to present it as a premium brand in pricing, in the guests that we get. And then we're going to try and look at different ancillary products. So we really want a YouTube channel that has content that reflects that same kind of info. Unpacking people's story, the honest, the true, the real, the vulnerable, and enable people to connect to that as well. So yeah, we're working on it. There's so much work to do. And there's so many things I want to do, but I've got to taste it. This definitely sounds like a watch this space and revisit in 12 months and 12 months again and see how everything's progressing. I'm interested that you mentioned how a lot of people here are exuding confidence on the outside. 
are tackling their own issues, challenges, demons internally. I think that will resonate with most people, actually. I, I still can vividly remember the early days of my current business, and I'm obviously no public persona. I didn't have to deal with that side of things, but we almost went bankrupt twice in the first couple of years. Less than a year in, my wife rang to say, I'm pregnant again, so there was a third child on the way, and she was going to stop work, obviously, for a good period of time this time around. And so all of those things are there as pressures. But of course, to everyone externally, how's it going? It's going great. It's going great. Because I can't let you know that it's not. And I think if that is magnified by being constantly in the public eye with a lot of the people who you're getting on, then that can be a huge pressure point for them. And so you're looking at developing it both as a channel, multiple channels, both as a brand, the content within there. So if you're able to share, who are the next people you've got featuring? Who's coming up? Not sure when this goes up, but Saturday the 19th of August, we have the amazing menswear fashion designer, Bianca Saunders. Bianca Saunders from South London, and she has just risen through the international fashion rank to like the top. This year, she was invited to the Met Gala, the Met Gala fashion show, and she was asked by Usher, the R&B superstar, to design a custom piece for him. And they actually invited her to come as well. So she was on the red carpet. That received massive acclaim, like Vogue, you name it. And so for me, I want her to come on because she is a woman who is a menswear designer. And it was a switch that she made earlier in her career because she wanted to display the nuances of masculinity. What is a typical man expected to wear? And how can I twist that? How can I explore that? How can I expand that? And she's done that amazingly well. Just from simple things of, she has this thing about her designs on the shoulder and how normally the suit jacket would be more rigid and then come down. Where she makes more of her pieces, her jacket, her top, they would more so follow the line of the shoulder to be more flexible. So that any man, whether you have a box shoulder or not, you're able to feel flexible and comfortable in what you're wearing. So I just find these things so like intriguing, what that is like, what it's like to reach such high and deal with that, all the media attention, all the pressure, just as you mentioned. So Saturday the 19th of August, we're going to be at the Kindred in Hammersmith. We're going to be unpacking that. And then we always give about 45 minutes to the audience to just ask their questions, whether it's budding creative designers, fashion designers in their early years. We just want to ask the question. You have some fascinating guests who you have had on and obviously have got coming on, but who's perhaps one of the North Stars, if you want? Who's somebody who just go, I really, really want them? I believe it's got to be top of the list at the moment is Letitia Wright. She again rose through the ranks for acting schools, well, London born. And again, going to Dizzy and Heights, and I've had to deal with media scrutiny. You know, there was issues with tweets in the past that got brought up in COVID, all these types of things. And I'm always intrigued in how people deal with these high-pressure situations, how people deal with being unknown in obscurity to them, boom, a star, and what that level presents. And a human, just on a human level, how do you deal with that? And what information from being at that height can you give to us down here for those who are trying to walk the same path? So Letitia Wright, if anybody knows Letitia Wright, 
you've got any connections, shout me. Right, shout out there to anybody to start using their networks to reach us somehow. So there's a lot going on. Father, musician, trainer, presenter, interviewer, brand owner. If you're looking at yourself in the mirror with a sort of a critical but respectful eye, how do you unpack what it is that makes you? What are the assets or the the skills or the attitudes deep inside you that have enabled you to achieve what you've done so far? I've never been asked that question. That's a real good, that's a real good question. I would say one of my, like a good mentor of mine years ago, in my teens, he said to me, he asked me a question. He said, um, when you die, will it have mattered that you live? That was a question posed. When you die, will it have mattered that even alive, that you were here? And it has never, ever left my mind. And so it's the one thing that keeps driving me in all the things that I do. Is what you're doing bringing any impact to anybody else's life? And I think that quality in me drives me to make sure anything that I'm involved with, it has some type of impact positively on somebody's life. And that is, you know, whether people are listening to my music or not, that is still driving me. Whether people are coming to the event or not, that drives me to keep pushing. And so when I'm sending emails to guests, oh, would you come and sit down? And I don't hear anything. Normally after two, three months, somebody would give up. Me? Oh, no, 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 no. It's either you're going to respond and say no, or you're going to respond and say yes. There's only two options here. And so the desire that I know that you coming on this platform is going to benefit these people so much, again, it just, builds within me this tenacity and drive to keep going. And so I think that's one element that I have, that determination that we will make this a success. We will make this happen. It's something that it just doesn't leave me. And then I'm a very, this ability to observe and read the room, I think I'm good at it. <laughs> I'm good at it. I'm a very observant person. I'm an introvert. So doing all these extrovert things is sometimes crazy. Like whenever we're going to do the sit down, and we're about to start. I have to go for a walk. My team now, I need to go for a walk for five minutes because I need to gear myself up for the amount of social interaction I'm about to have. And so once I'm in there, I've read the room and I understand that I know what we need to do and I'm able to deliver. And I've done it numerous times. Six years I've been doing that. For 10 years I've been doing that. And I think that is a skill that I have to be able to read the room and turn it on. You spoke about that confidence. Every single time I step into those arenas, I'm not necessarily confident, but I'm able to turn it on and deliver what is needed, when it's needed. After that, you'll probably find I'm the least person you want to have a conversation with. So I'm just not as, as vocal. But yeah. And you went to Middlesex University. You did a degree in film and media culture. If you can think back to yourself as the student, what would that student make of where you are now? Shock. Totally shock. You know, when I was picked that topic to study, I didn't pick it with any intention. I just picked it because I liked film. It was such a flimsy reason to study it, but I picked it because I thought, oh, I like films. Maybe studying films would be good. But in the first semester, my friend was studying media and culture studies, and he kept coming to me talking about target audiences, branding, marketing, media, and I was so intrigued. That's what I want to study. I spoke to my tutor at the time, and he said, you can major and minor in either one. Which one do you need? I said, okay, 
let's just add on major culture study. So there was no real progressive map I had. So if I was looking at my stuff now, I'd be like, you know what? Well done. You're actually using some of the things that you learn from media and culture studies and film. I edit all the videos that go on the sit down. I edit them for the promo work. I edit all the videos. That came from film studies, learning how to edit, learning about angles. And so I would say, well done for using the skills before you work. Yeah, I've watched a couple of the videos. They're slick, they're well produced, they're edited. And so you're not only in front of the camera on them, but you're also behind you're the director producer and editor all in one yeah so for the promo stuff i do all the promos for the actual recording of the event we have someone called Shalima kamara she's amazing but we work hand in hand just to make sure we present the platform in the best way possible and so what next for the sit down in terms of growing the audience but also funding the costs that go into running it yeah so in terms of growing the audience we're looking at niching down and just making sure that we keep two of our USPs, which are exclusivity and intimacy. Those are the things that actually run us down, exclusivity and intimacy. It's not for everybody. We don't want everybody there. We want a select few because that's what makes it intimate and that enables that one-to-one nature. But in terms of growing it, in terms of funding and finance, when looking at two models, we're going to be looking at being a not-for-profit because I feel that what we are doing, it is helping a bigger topic, which is around mental health and around and connection and talking and people being open and vulnerable, instilling a cultural conversation. So we're looking at a not-for-profit route, which we can then draw down grant, draw down funding, and but also sponsorship. There's people, there's brands that I feel what could be good for us to align with and work hand in hand to promote what we're doing, so they can come alongside and take care of the speakers' fee, take care of food, take care of the catering amazing so yeah we're kind of trying to niche down the audience continue to perfect that branding in terms of it being exclusive and intimate but then also look at what funding channels we want to dive down and for anybody else who's looking at what they might do with their career and they're thinking they have creative talents they have multiple interests they have passion points if you could distill from your highs and lows a bit of advice What do you think that might be? I think when I was growing up and I was coming up, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think a lot of people at the moment are bogged down with all the things they could do. I'm good at this, I'm good at this, I'm good at this, I'm good at this. And I would say in your early years, test those things out. Test them out. It's the one time you might have a passport with no responsibilities. Go and test them out in another country. Go and look at opportunities in another country. Whatever it is your intent, test it out. But understand there has to be an end to that testing stage. And so if you look at it as a curve, go up testing, 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 but as you're coming down, start to specialize and niche down. Okay, what is it I've tested? What is it that I really want to drill down into? Because I'm 41 years old. And when you're going into recruitment and you're going into, you know, you're LinkedIn, you're trying to fill for jobs and everything. Your CV's got to make sense. Otherwise, people are like, I don't know how to place you. You've done 15 things, but where's the correlation? You've done 15 things. Okay, but what is it that you do? Because I need to know how you're going to fit into this company. So I would say explore as much as possible in your younger testing out phases, but then start to narrow down a niche and be like, oh, okay, I think 
think this is the area that I want to drill down into. I think that's so interesting from a mindset perspective as well, because if in your earlier career years, you free yourself up mentally to say experimentation is fine, I'm going to try some different routes, I'm going to, as you say, test it, it relaxes you perhaps from the pressure of you and others saying to you, what is your career? What is your job? What exactly are you going to do? You go, no, no, I'm just finding my way at the moment, but with the knowledge that at some point I'm going to need to want to make some choices, narrow down some direction and get brilliant at something. Yeah, love that. Get brilliant at something, yeah. So it's been fascinating. We could carry this on for a lot longer. So Top Hour, I've really enjoyed speaking to you, facilitator, trainer, rapper, filmmaker, so much going on in here at the moment. One of the things we always want to do is to pass this baton along. And so I have to ask if there's somebody else who you think we should get on here by unwrapping their career, it would give us more insights into our own. There's a gentleman by the name of BJ Melenga. I actually came across him in my bank as a young gentleman who in his school, a young age created a tuck shop and a tuck shop enterprise where he was encouraging young people to buy snacks, sell them for a better price and make a profit. We took that model across all these schools. But now he is in the position of being a career advisor on his own company and just helping people navigate their way. But his journey from such a young age, I think will be amazing and amazing because he's very practical and he's been through that journey of finding his way, testing out things and he's just an amazing patient. Brilliant. Definitely somebody for us to reach out to there. Thanks so much. It's been great having you on here. I'm really struck by so many of the insights you've given into how you made decisions that you made as you went along. And I think that's so important because people are often, as part of their careers, facing decision crossroads and really worried about it. And so there's thought and process within doing that. But also what you said about when you die, will it have mattered that you were there? Will it have mattered that you live? I love that thought. I think it's clear that you and your work Top Air do matter. It's been great having you on Careers Unwrapped. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by We Are Futures. To find out more about We Are Futures and how we can introduce your brand, business or organisation to the mass markets of tomorrow, visit www.wearefutures.com. Make sure to search for Careers Unwrapped in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Remember to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at We Are Futures, thanks for listening.